Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 32. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. Never mind. It is a truth universally acknowledged. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hey, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to a Let Me Tell You a Story Christmas podcast. We'll begin with the story of Jesus' birth from Luke 2, followed by a shepherd's story. This is from Luke 2, 1 through 7, in a New International Version. The birth of Jesus. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. This short story by Janelle Ryder is titled John Ben Roy. I'll read the first uh, approximate half of the story, and Steve will read the remainder. I know a man, a good man, a good and kind man. His name is John Ben Roy. He's been good and kind as long as I've known him. But these past few years have required a certain amount of bravery for him to remain good and kind. When I was a little girl, sometimes John would notice me playing in the marketplace. He'd stoop down to my level, look me in the eye, and ask, What did you do today, little one? Oh, did you take joy in that? Yes. Please tell me what brought you gladness. No? Oh, I am very sorry. Would you like to tell me why not? I never felt I had to tell him, but the invitation was so genuine and the expectant look on his face so caring that I always did. When I grew a little older, and the boys who used to chase us girls had turned shy and awkward, John would glance at me with a twinkle in his eye. Oh, I think Luke over there has grown into a handsome young man. Don't you think so? He has his eye on you, you know. Perhaps his father has spoken with yours, yes? And as crimson crept up my face, he would chuckle and walk away calling over his shoulder. You'll see. John was an incurable romantic. He'd married his childhood sweetheart, and they adored each other. He first caught sight of her one sun-washed spring day. She was running down the hill near where he sat with the sheep. Her eyes danced with delight, and she was singing. He couldn't catch the words, but the melody was pure magic. And in that moment, he knew his heart was hers. He was 17. Joanna was 13. John was drawn to Joanna not only for her beauty, but because she saw beauty in everything good. A sunrise arching across the sky, a baby lamb trying out his legs, the plaintive melody of a solitary flute, the fragrance of a daffodil. Each was an occasion for rejoicing and giving praise to her creator. And Joanna, well, Joanna loved John from the moment she saw him. And not just because he was strong and handsome. She recognized in him the heart of a shepherd, compassionate and attentive, vigilant and fiercely protective, possessing a tender soul born out of countless hours spent in the company of the God he loved. They were married a year later, and no one who was there that day can speak of the occasion without a smile. Oh, you should have seen those two, they will say. Never were two young people more meant to be together. And they will tell you what it was like to see them together tending sheep for those first few years. At times they'd walk hand in hand, so engaged in lively discourse, 
that more than once they let a lamb wander too far and had to rescue it from a thorny bush. Then they'd walk back together, John carrying the lamb on his shoulders, but never missing a beat in their conversation. At other times, you might find them sitting on a rocky outcropping, singing a song. It might be a psalm or a story about the three brave young men in Nebuchadnezzar's court, or just a silly song they made up on the spur of the moment, dissolving into giggles by the time they'd finished. Sometimes John would get out his shepherd's pipe, his cheeks would puff in and out in the most comical way, and the melodies he improvised would make Joe and his heart skip with merriment. Then there were the times John danced. That was when Joanna could not contain her laughter. He'd shuffle his feet back and forth in a pattern only he knew, throw his arms up over his head and fling them about wildly, twirling round and round, faster and faster, delighting in the laughter of his young wife. And finally, there were those special evenings when the stars were splashed across the sky in such profusion that it was as if they'd banded together into one shimmering mosaic. On those nights, John and Joanna would stand out in the field with the sheep, sometimes for hours, eyes lifted, talking to God with awe in their voices, and yet, in an intimate manner, as if he was their very best friend. One such night, after they'd been married several years and after they'd welcomed into their lives, two daughters and a son, they were standing on a little hill away from the other shepherds. The grass and scrubby bushes were awash in brilliant light. It was one of those nights where you can see falling star after falling star, and you can't help but think how very tiny you are, and you can't take your eyes off the sky, and you keep thinking, how big is this God who made the stars and even calls them by name? And how did he come up with the idea of stars in the first place? And then you think, if he's existed forever, that means he didn't come from anywhere. He just always has been. And then your mind starts spinning and reeling, and you have to stop thinking, or it all becomes simply too much for you. Well, it was on this night, their faces reflecting the grandeur of the heavens and their hearts overcome with wonder that the most amazing thing happened. It started out as a distant murmur, and they thought perhaps a storm was rolling in. But then the murmur grew louder in a way that's hard to describe. It did not get louder in the way that noises usually get louder, decibels growing in intensity. It grew in their spirit more than in their ears, filling them with anticipation. For what? they did not know. And yet, because this feeling was so unknown to them, it was mingled with no small amount of fear. And as the sound grew more pervasive, their fear grew at the same rate. They had no consciousness of time passing. So to this day, they cannot tell you how long they stood there, unable to turn their faces away from the night sky. But in time, the sound was joined by an image. Joanna saw it first and exclaimed, Oh, John, what are we seeing? He could not answer her, so bewildered was he by the sight. He was no stranger to the stars scattered across the heavens, and he well knew this was something he'd not seen before. Although they couldn't tell from which direction the image came, it began to grow, just like the murmur it accompanied. Until now, their very soul seemed to fill with its light. And suddenly, the sound was no longer growing, and it was no longer indistinct. And the image was not just some gleaming new celestial object. No, it blazed and it bedazzled and it took shape. And its shape was that of a... What was it? A man? John's fright turned to terror. He tore his gaze away from the fearsome sight for just a moment and he saw the other shepherds mirrored the same fright. Some had fallen on their faces. Some were trembling. Some had dissolved into uncontrollable tears. His own heart pounded so wildly he expected it to explode right out of his chest. He instinctively cradled Joanna in his arms, trying to calm her and protect her from he didn't know what. And that was when the murmur stopped and the man spoke. Do not be afraid. And just as the murmur had been more than mere noise that the ears hear, these words took on a power of their own, as if the speaking of them made their meaning a reality. John's heart regained a normal rhythm, and Joanna grew still in his arms. And if that sudden peace was not enough, the man spoke again. Listen and see. I am bringing you good news which will make you and everyone else who receives it filled with such great joy you will never again be the same. This day, John, a Savior has been born for you in the city of David. He is Christ, the Lord. 
Joanna remembers the words a little differently, because in her version, the man did not say John, but rather Joanna. The man waited a moment for the words to sink in, though, as John found out in the years to follow, it would take a lifetime of pondering before his heart would begin to truly grasp the joy of them. The man continued, There will be a sign for you. Again, those beautiful words, for you. Here's what it is. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. What could this mean? A baby? What? And just when it seemed their minds could absorb no more, the sound they heard earlier started up again. The sky began to fill with more angels, for that's what they finally understood them to be. Their number was beyond counting. They overpowered the expanse above the shepherds so that the stars disappeared, and all that remained was an immense army of messengers. They were speaking as if with one voice, and this was no murmur. The words were exuberant, and they were unmistakable. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men, with whom he is pleased. Not once, but over and over again they made the announcement, and no two times were the same. Tempo, cadence, and accent changed, so that sometimes John and Joanna bowed their heads with reverence, and other times their hearts leapt for joy and still other times their minds filled with anticipation. At some point, was it a minute later, an hour, a year, they realized the voice had faded and what they were hearing now was simply echoes in their own spirits. The sky was once again dotted with familiar stars, and the earth was completely silent as the shepherds stood there trying to fathom all that had happened. And at some point, was it a minute later, an hour, a year, They realized the voices had faded, and what they were hearing now was simply echoes in their own spirits. The sky was once again dotted with familiar stars, and the earth was completely silent as the shepherds stood there, trying to fathom all that had happened. Finally, one of them spoke. He said we would find a baby in a manger. He looked at the one who spoke, and then at one another, and then little conversations broke out everywhere. Are we supposed to go find the baby? Who's going to stay with the sheep? How are we going to find one tiny baby among all those people staying in Bethlehem tonight? Why would a baby be lying in a manger anyway? Why did he tell us? And then someone shouted, Come on, let's go. And they began to walk and then walk faster. And then some of them started running. And by the time they reached town, they were all out of breath and their legs were about to buckle under them. But they did not notice and they did not care. No one can quite remember how they found the manger. There's just something about the birth of a baby that gets people talking. So they asked this person and that, and before they knew it, they arrived at a simple house. The house is dark, and it seemed that everyone inside was sleeping. But from behind the house, they heard gentle whispering. Not wanting to awaken anyone, they tiptoed toward the sound of the whispers and saw a stable from which glowed the amber light of an oil lamp. Joanna's heart skipped a beat, and she breathed in her husband's ear. Oh, John, do you think we found the baby? At that moment, a man walked out of the stable toward them. He looked exhausted, but his countenance welcomed them warmly. You have come to see him. His comment was more than a statement. John answered, Yes, the baby. We were told he was the one. We've waited for the Savior. The man nodded with a smile and invited them into the stable. They were used to the musty odor of sheep, so the two donkeys and three little lambs they had to crowd past did not bother them in the least. And besides, who would even take notice of animals at a moment like this? All eyes were on the woman in the corner, but the carved-out stone feeding in the corner by the carved-out stone feeding trough. She'd been gazing at the trough as if deep in thought. But when she heard them enter, she raised her eyes and smiled. Like her husband, she seemed to be expecting them. Joanna caught her eye, and it seemed that moment they became friends, two mothers both having known the travail and the joy of giving birth. One mother overwhelmed. She should have been chosen to bear the Savior of the world. The other mother overcome by a longing to worship him. The little group shyly made their way to the manger and peered into it. 
and there the baby lay, bundled tightly in claws, just as the angel had told them he would be. He was awake, his little eyes opening and then closing against the new light, his tiny mouth working as if trying to figure out what he would do, what it would do with itself. The faces of the shepherds broke into smiles, and they ooed and awed and exclaimed, Look, how cute he is! But soon the room quieted. It was then John spoke, his voice clear and resonant. He's perfect. The baby's mother answered, Yes, he is. The father invited them to sit on the ground. He offered them water and barley bread, which they gladly accepted. As the bread was passed around, no one knew what to say or if they should say anything at all, so they just waited. Then the mother began to speak, and she told them how an angel had come to her with astounding news that she would bear a son, and he would be the Son of God. The father told them how the angel had come to him and astonished him with the news that this baby would be the one to save the people from their sins. Finally, Joanna spoke, almost inaudibly. Everyone leaned in to hear her. An angel came to us, too, she said. In response to the couple's curious expressions, she related all that had happened to the shepherds that night. No one doubted anyone else's story, for they knew the Lord himself had spoken to each of them. By the time the sun's glow cast its first pinkish-silver hues over the streets and houses of Bethlehem, their hearts had come to know that whoever this little baby was, he had changed them forever. Many thousands of sunrises had projected their morning promise across the land by the time John and I became friends. He and Joanna had shepherded a dozen generations of sheep in just as many locations before they finally settled in the hills of Galilee surrounding my hometown. Time had not dampened Joanna's delight in everything beautiful, nor had it dimmed John's vibrant shepherd's soul. And it had only served to deepen the affection they so visibly had for one another, so that more than once I caught myself daydreaming of the day when God might bring such a love into my own life. But then something happened that proved their devotion in a way nothing else could have. Something so sorrowful that they had not, that had they not spent decades cultivating their love for each other and for their God, it could have destroyed them. Joanna became ill, not over time, but suddenly, one moment enjoying sweet conversation with her husband while the sheep grazed around them, the next moment unable to speak or walk, and their world was changed. Over the next couple of years, John tended sheep with his staff and rod, but his heart tended Joanna. All the while he was with the sheep, he had no thought or care but her. Even though their children took turns looking in on their mother when John was in the fields, the minute his duties were over, he ran home to be with her. When Luke and I saw him in town, he'd greeted us kindly and showed general, genuine interest in how we were faring as newlyweds but we could see it took all the courage he could muster to continue with the everyday activities he and Joanna used to share together. One day, when the sun was high in the sky, its heat blasting across his face and boring into his already troubled soul, John felt as if he could carry his grief no longer. His shoulders sagged and his sandals felt heavy as he shuffled a few yards over to the nearest rock. He sank onto its unwelcoming surface and buried his face in his hands, feeling as though his heart would break. His thoughts were all a jumble, tumbling one upon the other and sinking into his soul until it felt as heavy as the rock he was sitting on. Before he knew it, he heard himself speaking his rogue thoughts out loud. Lord, for all these years, Joanna has been my life. You know that, Lord, because you gave her to me. You knew I would need her by my side and that she, and that she would complete all the places that were lacking in me. You know, we talked about everything. Who knew each other's hearts like we did? And now she cannot even tell me what she's thinking. I am only left guessing. Lord, I have meditated on your word every single morning. I've spent my days praying to you and listening to your voice. I've tried to obey all you ask of me. Your word says the man who trusts in you and delights in your law will be blessed. Well, how am I blessed now? 
As his words grew passionate, he noticed they'd been joined by the animated chirping of a sparrow in a nearby fig tree. The little gray-brown bird twittered and chattered, oblivious to John's sorrow. John tried to ignore the bird, but he could not get past the incongruity. This was not the place. This was not the time for happiness. He glared at the little gray-brown bird, willing it to quiet down. But the annoying onslaught of cheer continued. He shouted at it to stop its incessant jabbering, but to no avail. In desperation, John reached for the leather sling draped across his shoulder. He picked up a stone from the ground and placed it in the pouch, wrapping one of the strings around his hand and holding the other string between his fingers. He swung his arm in a wide arc, and with a flick of his wrist, released the loose string, sending the stone sailing through the air. In a lifetime of long and tedious days tending sheep, he'd honed his skill to an art. The stone found its mark, and the bird fell out of the tree, silenced. John felt a moment of gratified triumph, but only a moment, because the next thing he knew, remorse had overtaken him. What had the little noisemaker done to him? It had merely been expressing delight with the voice its maker had given it to do that very thing. Now John's grief was compounded by guilt. The sling hung limp in his hand, and his head drooped dejectedly. He walked toward the little bird and kneeled down next to it. Taking the end of his staff, he scratched the dirt until he had hollowed out a small hole. Tenderly scooping up the bird, he laid it in the hole and scattered dirt over it. He stood up as miserable as he'd ever been in all his life. He glanced at the position of the sun in the sky and realized if he was going to get home to Joanna before nightfall, he'd better start walking toward town and complete the errands he'd set out to do. He gathered his sling and his bag, grasped the staff in his hand, and set out across the field. The air was still and the heat oppressive. As John wearily made his way across the dry grass, His heavy feet stumbled more than once over a rock in his path. As he walked, he found himself speaking out loud again. The words this time were more resigned. Lord, you are my great shepherd. I know you would never harm me as I harmed the little bird. You tell me so in your word, and your word is good forever. It doesn't wither and shrivel and die like this grass, or like my heart feels right now. You never tire of watching over me. When I have not a shred of strength left, you give me new strength and eagle's wings. And if I can't find the courage to use those wings, you pick me up and carry me in your arms. How is it that you care for me like this, mighty Creator God? You know every star in the heavens by name, and yet you know mine too. A distant memory began to invade his thoughts. Soft as a sweet whisper, it began to blow gently, refreshing his weary soul. He stopped in his tracks, allowing the memory to overtake him until he was once again standing on that starlit hill, Joanna by his side. There was a night full of stars once, I remember. How could I forget? You drew back the curtain that night and let us have a glimpse of your glory. The words, what were those words? Great joy. Unto you, a Savior, great joy unto you. As the memory invaded his heart, he saw once again the faces of the mother and father who knew a profound miracle had taken place. Such peace, such hope, such humility he saw in their countenance. And then he saw the face of the baby, just a cute little infant, drawing everyone to him as all babies do. But in those early morning hours in the stable, even back then, John had known this baby was drawing him in a way no other babies ever could. And on this sun-infused day now, for the first time, John understood why. The face he had peered into was the face of God himself. As the words and the emotions of that night flooded back, John returned to his conversation with his shepherd. Lord, How can I ever thank you for this hope that has carried me all my life? Even these last two years, when I did not believe I could rise out of bed one more morning, the promise of that night brought me to my feet and kept me upright. God, I'm just so tired. I need you to break through to my 
dull spirit and show me again you are with me and your presence is fullness of joy and I need to know you are here right now more than I've ever needed to know in my life. Still weary, yet somehow gladdened, John resumed his journey, but this time with a more confident step. No more stumbling over rocks. As he strode toward town, the dialogue with his friend continued. Fields and clouds and birds and bushes were lost to him. Only he and his God were on the path, deep in sweet conversation. And so it was with a start that John came over a rise and caught sight of a crowd of people all looking toward him, hundreds of them, men and women, some very old and some very young, others every age in between. And except for the children who were playing or fidgeting and the parents who were trying to corral them, everyone was seated and their faces were pointed in his direction. Then he saw the man seated on a large rock not far to his right. The man was speaking and no wonder everyone's attention was riveted to him. His voice was gentle and strong, warm and intent. It carried a quality of authority John had never heard in any person. John stood still so that he could catch what the man was saying. Aren't two sparrows sold for a cent? And with that rhetorical question hanging in the air, the man paused in his discourse, and he did the most intentional of things. He turned his head toward John. Their eyes met, and John caught his breath. He knew these eyes. Not their color, nor their size, nor their shape. It was something else, something intangible that bypassed his senses and traveled directly to his soul. With his gaze still on John, the man spoke again, slowly emphasizing each word. To this day, John will tell you he heard his own name distinctly, just as he had that long-ago night under the stars. John, not one of these little birds will fall to the ground without your father's knowledge and care. And then he knew. Once again, he was seeing the face of the little baby in the manger, the one they named Jesus, the Savior. And his Savior was saying to him, I am with you. The man, Jesus, nodded his head, his eyes speaking compassion. Understanding passed between the two of them. Jesus had known all of it, those first years when they were young and giddy in love the laughter and exhaustion that came with raising three children, the songs on the meadows and the prayers under the stars, the years of hard work with little to show for it, the night of the angels, the rejection they as shepherds had continued to receive from society even after the angels had visited them, the shock and grief of Joanna's sudden illness, the last two years of interminable sadness, and the sparrow. He had known it all. Jesus smiled at John and then turned back to the crowd. Do you know that your father counts every single hair on your head? John considered how his thick head of hair had thinned over time, and it occurred to him God must be very attentive indeed to have kept track of all these years. Jesus' next words surprised John with her familiarity. Do not fear. Hadn't that been what the angels said to them as they stood trembling on the hillside years ago? Isn't that what the baby's mother and father had each heard from an angel as well? And now this man was saying it again. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. That moment, John stopped being afraid. He no longer feared he would wither from sorrow. He no longer feared his loneliness would overtake him. He no longer feared God's blessings had ceased. His Savior cared for him and was with him, and this was all he needed to know. John would have stayed to hear the rest of Jesus' words had it not been for a sudden overpowering impulse to share the amazing news with Joanna. He turned around, forgetting the errands he'd intended to do, and began to run. Carried by strong legs and propelled by even stronger anticipation— John flew across hills and through ravines, leaping over rocks and crashing through bushes until he finally arrived at the little shelter that was their home. He paused for a moment outside the door, sides heaving and lungs sucking in huge gulps of air. As John commanded his breathing to settle down, it occurred to him 
He'd given no thought as to how he'd relate the news to Joanna. How much did she remember from that night with the angels? How much would she understand now? And would this all be too much for her to take in, perhaps causing her distress? Still not sure what he would say. He stooped down and entered through the low doorway. Waiting for a moment as his eyes adjusted to the dim light, he silently offered a short prayer. Lord, please show me how to tell her and cause this news to break through to her spirit so my gladness becomes hers as well. With this prayer still in mind, he focused on Joanna, who was propped up against pillows on a mat in the corner, looking at him expectantly. And then, before he had a chance to say, I have something wonderful to tell you, he saw her mouth was working and she was trying to whisper something. He could hardly believe it. He rushed to her side, kneeling down beside her, his ear to her mouth. What is it, Joanna? What is it? And then she, who had not spoken in two years, said clear as day, I know. He brought his head back and looked at her in disbelief. Their eyes met and she said it again, but this time with one additional word, the sweetest word he could have heard her say, I know, John. His eyes filled with tears and so did hers. They held each other's gaze as the impact of this day sunk in and bucket loads of emotion flowed unspoken between these two kindred heart friends. As their minds recalled a lifetime of shared experience, every moment was now recast in the light of a merciful Savior who'd been there all the time. John grinned. He couldn't help it. It was all simply just too wonderful. Joanna, who'd never been successful at resisting John's good humor, even in the most unlikely of moments, began to grin too. Her face lit up and her eyes laughed with his. Suddenly, John jumped to his feet. Let's go. He gathered Joanna in his arms and carried her across the room and out the door. The sun was just beginning to set over the hills of the Galilee, and the world had turned the most peaceful shade of yellow-pink. He walked the few yards to the sycamore tree standing outside their home and gently placed Joanna in a comfortable position under its shady branches. He sat down next to her and began to sing songs of praise from the scriptures they loved, songs from their childhood, love songs. And then John heard the sweetest sound. Joanna was humming along with him. He began to laugh, and then the songs turned silly. His happiness turned to sheer delight, and he could no longer stay seated. Still singing, he stood up. Joanna shook her head at him with a look of amusement, as if to say, John, you're not really going to? And then, oh yes, he was. His feet started to shuffle back and forth in a little dance pattern all his own. He threw his arms up over his head, tossing them about with glee, oblivious to the fact that he looked like a fool. So lost was he in the joy of making his wife laugh. Then he began to twirl faster and faster, glancing at Joanna with each rotation to catch her delighted giggles. Oh, and there were plenty of them. At first, a few quiet bursts then more animated chuckling, and finally raucous belly laughs that shook her from head to toe. At last, covered with sweat and filled with joy, John collapsed on the ground next to the love of his life. He wrapped his arms around her, and they sat there in quiet reflection as their minds absorbed and their hearts embraced the miracle of this day. Just as the sun was disappearing over the horizon, they saw a man standing off in the distance, even from that far away, they could tell his eyes shone with compassion. He smiled and waved, and then he did the most unexpected thing. He began to dance, and the dance looked strangely familiar to John's. Then he began to laugh, a laugh more joyful than any they'd ever heard, a laugh so contagious they had no choice but to join in. They shared moments of pure happiness together, those two on the ground and the man across the field. And then the man continued on his journey. But as he left, both John and Joanna will tell you they distinctly heard him say, For you, John. For you, Joanna. And there was, in that moment, greater joy than they'd ever known. To this day, whenever I meet John in the marketplace, he still will stop to ask how Luke and I are doing and to hear the latest antics of our children. But then he always takes a moment to recount the night he first met his Savior and to remind me that life spent 
in his presence is the best life I will ever know. And then as he walks away, John always calls back over his shoulder. You'll see. You'll see. Here's an excerpt from Heather Woodhaven's newest release, Christmas with Book Club. Heather graciously agreed to read a chapter for us. Christmas with Book Club by Heather Woodhaven Chapter 1. Janine The bells jingled as Janine pulled the elf costume from the car. She lifted the accompanying tote bag and hung it on her shoulder. Brad's car sat empty next to hers in the garage. Please let him have had a better day than me. She needed dibs on venting. Janine kicked open the laundry room door and entered the house from the garage. She managed to sidestep the hamper directly in her path. The kids were away at their extracurricular activities, meaning she had approximately 10 minutes to decompress before diving into the evening chauffeur and volunteer duties. Brad! Her head turned side to side as she walked down the hallway and through the living room, the kitchen, and finally up the stairs. Brad! Where are you? The frigid temperatures made it unlikely he'd be outside, and his food truck, Tortilla Later, was permanently parked at the racetrack for the season. She kicked her shoes off at the threshold of the bedroom, and the two clogs flew across the room. Her toes sunk into the plush carpet as her gaze drifted to her unmade bed, with Brad in it. Seriously? He decided to take a nap now? The holiday season had so much on the schedule, Google should be sending her calendar alerts on the hour. 12 p.m. Are you okay? 5 p.m. You know days weren't designed to hold this much, right? 8 p.m. Want a glass of wine? 9 p.m. Better yet, how about a warm, adults-only eggnog? She'd love Google forever if it talked to her like that. Janine dumped the tote on her side of the bed, but Brad's sleeping form remained still. She walked around to his side and flung the covers back. A horse's bright blue, dead eyes stared back at her. Janine jerked, slammed into the bookshelf, and screamed. On a second look, though, it resembled a lifelike stuffed animal more than an actual horse head. Brad's deep chuckle filled the room. He stepped from the darkened walk-in closet, arms outstretched, laughing. Oh, honey, I'm sorry. Are you okay? I didn't think it worked so well. He tried to pull her into his arms, but she smacked his shoulder instead. You have to admit I got you good. His eyes drifted to the striped tights and green outfit in her fists. Maybe you were planning something of your own. She put a hand on his chest. No, no. You need to explain yourself first. Why is there a horse's head in my bed? Brad held up his index finger. First off, it's not any old horse. It's Buster Bronco. Janine blinked, unamused. Brad stared back, clearly waiting for a reaction, and shrugged. The real mascot is going to be at a championship game the same weekend of the parade. And it'll be finals week, so they didn't want to ask another student. Guess who they assigned to represent at the parade? Her mouth dropped. No. She groaned and sank into the mattress. But I needed your help for the holiday parade. Brad flopped next to her. Let me guess. Doc wants you to be an elf in the parade? Worse. She lifted up the tote bag with a large wing sticking out of it. A tooth fairy dressed like an elf, complete with a toothbrush the size of a hockey stick. Brad scrunched his forehead. Yeah, that's whack. It gets better. Guess who he assigned to make and run the float? He stretched out on the bed diagonally. That doesn't add up. The parade is next week. He'd had to have applied for a spot over a month ago. Instead, he waits until right after Thanksgiving? Janine dropped the tote, flung a hand over her eyes, and snuggled into Brad's side. This is Doc we're talking about. Her boss knew his way around teeth like no one's business. 
but organization and empathy wasn't his strong suit. Doc wants it to be the best float in the parade, but get this. He says I'm not allowed to give out candy because it would send the wrong message. Plus, I guess they banned candy from the parade a few years back. And he picked you because you know kids best? I thought he knew better after your book club challenge. That's just it. He wants me to think of something brilliant, something worthy of making the news. He doesn't care what it is, but it's supposed to go along with wearing this costume while I throw out toothbrushes. Feels like throwing sticks. Is there an eye doctor float behind you for when they hit people in the eye? She tilted her chin up. I'm hoping you can help me figure it out. Brad sat up, essentially flipping Janine to the side. No, I can't. I already made plans for the food truck to be part of the holiday parade, remember? That's why I made Mexican hot cocoa last weekend for you guys to try. Hmm, chocolate. Janine pointed to the furry guy on his pillow. What about Buster? I was going to ask Mark to wear it. Nope, he has work. Marie? She shook her head. Did the man ever check the calendar? Babysitting. Maddie? Janine sat up as well, shaking off the dizzy feeling that threatened to overwhelm her. She cocked her head and shot him a look. Aside from the fact she's eight years old, Brad? He shrugged. No. Besides, she'll be at a birthday party. Brad lifted the Bronco head off the pillow and he carried it to the walk-in closet. We're going to have to call and help then. He returned without the horse. What's tonight? I go to Marie's choir concert while you go to Maddie's dance recital. She raised her eyebrows. Unless you want to switch. Not a chance. Aren't you volunteering backstage? Janine curled her lip. Yes. Basically, she'd been assigned fainting patrol, which meant watching the top row of kids on the back risers. Tonight would call for running shoes, just in case. I better get going then. Brad stepped into the bathroom, checked his appearance in the mirror, and headed out the door. Don't forget to save me a seat, she called out after him. Love, he replied, his voice echoing in the stairwell. Apparently there wasn't even enough time to finish the sentiment with a you. Ditto, she muttered. Love? Yes. Her eyes drifted to the book club selection on her nightstand. But romance? She freed her chestnut hair from the ponytail holder and glanced down at her blue hygienist scrubs. Romance was just one more thing to add onto the to-do list. Saturday morning, Janine threw on her coat and crossed the street to Anne's house with a full mug of coffee. This would be the shortest book club meeting of the year, as they could barely find a time for everyone to meet. Anne held the door open before she even reached the patio. The smell of cinnamon rolls wafted out, and Janine quickened her pace. So much for eating healthier this holiday season. She stepped into the warmth and shed her coat onto a black hook in the hallway. I didn't know you were serving breakfast. Anne's face fell. I think you're smelling my candle. It's a cinnamon roll scent. I read that if you smell what you crave, then you don't eat as much. Janine inhaled and her stomach gurgled. Paula stepped in the hallway, holding her own cup of java. I think Janine's stomach disproved that theory. Anne shrugged. I'll blow it out. Janine placed a hand over her belly. Don't do that on my account. I just need to get more coffee in me. Paula's stomach growled. No, please let her. Anne snickered. Okay, okay, I'll stop torturing you. I wanted to wait until Kate got here to serve them, but she's late. I really did read that about candles, though. Janine and Paula exchanged a confused glance before they followed Anne into the kitchen. On top of the ceramic stove sat a pan of rolls covered in a pecan streusel and topped with icing. I love you. The words slipped from Janine's mouth before she realized she'd said it. She didn't even mind Anne's attempted trickery if they were going to eat some. I made a couple batches ahead of time in anticipation of Thanksgiving, but I made too much. Anne pointed to the full coffee pot. I bought some mistletoe coffee. Thought it would go well with discussing the holiday romance. The hot coffee in her hands, coupled with the warm kitchen, decorated with a snowman cookie jar, Christmas tree tea towels, and deep red walls, prompted the images in their book club selection, The Santa Society, to come to mind. 
The hero took the heroine on a horse-drawn sleigh ride and kissed her as the snow fell in giant flakes all around them. Janine sighed. Anne raised an eyebrow. Everything okay? Janine straightened. Yeah, I... it's nothing. Spit it out. Paula rested one hip against the entry to the kitchen. But I'm telling you right now, if it's another challenge... It's not a challenge. Janine held up a hand. She wouldn't have traded their book club challenge for anything in the world. It taught her how to live in the moment, grow her friendships, and experience adventure without having to go anywhere. Her career was better for it, her husband happier, but life became busier. Brad and I have been married almost 20 years. Anne stepped forward and touched Janine's elbow. Are you guys okay? Yes, yes. That's why I said it was nothing. We're fine. We love each other. It's... <sighs> Lately, we've been so wrapped up with ourselves, our kids, our life, all good things, that I can't remember the last time I experienced romance outside the pages of a book. Paula sipped her coffee. Her eyes drilled a hole into Janine's skull over the rim of her mug. Are we talking romance or are we talking romance? Janine interjected. She'd learned to appreciate Paula's bluntness at times, but some things were best left unsaid. I'm talking romance. Though if there were more of the one, there'd probably be more of the other. Anne snorted and nodded. She picked up a knife and cut the baked dough in squares. Have you tried making the first move? Golden rule, baby, Paula added, though her eyes remained on the cinnamon rolls. Treat him the way you'd want to be treated. Of course, he probably doesn't want roses. Plus, even if you make an effort, you probably aren't being obvious enough. She accepted a plate from Anne and popped a giant forkful in her mouth. It's amazing what some people can miss, she mumbled through the food. Janine and Anne exchanged a glance, both smiling. Anne's eyes crinkled with held-back laughter. How many times had Paula missed subtle social cues from the rest of the group? Yet, when it came down to important matters... Everyone knew Paula would do anything for them. Anne handed Janine a plate. Brad loved this kind of pastry. Janine blinked. When was the last time she'd done something special for Brad? Something besides buying him his favorite cereal at the grocery store. You're right. It's time I made a bold, romantic gesture. Anne spun around with her own plate. You go, girl! Paula stepped forward and scraped off some more topping from another cinnamon roll onto her own plate. Isn't Kate supposed to be here? Anne shared a wistful look with Janine. Ah, to be a newlywed again. Thanks, Heather. Sounds like your book club ladies are just as fun and zany as they were in the first book of the best ever book club series. To read the rest of Heather's Christmas novella, search online book retailers for Christmas with Book Club. Now, Steve has a Christmas reading for you. I titled this Measureless. God, thank you for being love that you don't just own it, or possess it, or rule it. No, you are love. It's an equation. God equals love. Love equals God. Thank you for demonstrating your infinite, unconditional love by sending Jesus to pay the extreme price, his death, instead of mine, his innocence for my impurity, his sinlessness for my sin. And Jesus, to even consider what happened for 33 mortal years, a mere blink compared to the eternal bliss you, you temporarily surrendered, spins my imagination. I am unable to absorb the depth of such love, love that sent you like a meteorite, blazing and short-lived, in order to connect with me and the whole world in a way that could be accomplished no other way, face-to-face. How refreshing to hear you speak words of forgiveness and grace rather than the legalism of those masters of mire 
who piously expounded their self-made rules. Their thoughts were more worn than used shoes. You embarrassed those teachers when you exposed their hypocrisy. Perhaps that's my favorite part. You stood up to them when no one else dared. Not only did you show them, but you showed us you were willing to span time and eternity in order to bring your incredible love story. You were love at birth, love in life, and love in death. Most of all, your love was verified in your resurrection. It seems insufficient to say, thank you for joining our world, but we have no truer expression. Thank you. And Jesus, I love you. I love you. P.S. See you soon. With that, we'll end it. May you all have a very Merry Christmas. Remember Jesus. Thanks for joining us. We wish you a joyous holiday season. But don't forget, Jesus is the reason for the season. (laughs) Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.